Mover Nation, the trial of Michelle Traconis is about ready to enter its fourth week. And I am just now catching up to it. And I got to tell you, after looking and examining this case over the last 24 hours, I have, of course, a lot of thoughts. I'm Collier Landry. Let's get into it. Testimony continued today in the most notorious criminal trial. In when I was 12 years old, my testimony sent my father to prison for murdering my mother. I decided at an early age that our trauma should not be what defines us. It's what we choose to do with it that does. I'm here to share my unique perspective on true crime, mental health, society, and popular culture, albeit with a slight sense of humor. I'm Collier Landry, and welcome to my show. Mover Nation, what is going on? I'll tell you what's going on. There is a atmospheric river monsoon going on outside these hallowed walls of production glory. <laughs> I'll tell you. Um, yeah, it has. Uh, we have massive storms here in the Southern California area, and uh, it is not fun. It is cold. It is wet. And I am so glad because I got up at 6 a.m. this morning just to get everything done before the rains hit. It was It's already been a very productive day, and it's only 3 o'clock. So here we are. Um, so I am, of course, as always, late to the party on all these trials, all these things. And, of course, it always starts out with a conversation with my adoptive mother, Susan. And she says, have you looked at this case? <laughs> That's how it usually starts. Did you look at this case? Have you heard of this? And usually, like, have you heard of the children? What do you think the, the children feel? How do you think they are? Do you know that they're being raised by their 90-year-old grandmother and there was five children? And I got to be honest with you, this whole thing is so, this all started back in May of 2019. And I can tell you that back in May of 2019, I must have been on a different planet because I don't remember this. I wasn't really into this type of thing. I wasn't even doing the show. Um but I'll tell you, as I look back at it, I just, it, there are some very eerie parallels that are very similar to my, my father's case, my mother's situation. And, um, I've been really digesting a lot of this big shout out to court McNeil who put together our wonderful, uh, research for this episode as well, as she always does. Uh, I am very grateful for her, uh, doing that and, uh, we're getting into it. But first, uh, I want to tell you about today's video sponsor. If you are not aware, I have been working with this sponsor for about a month now. And I'll tell you, I had a bunch of stuff online that I could not get rid of robocalls, all kinds of annoying, just stuff coming my way. And ever since I started using today's sponsor aura, it has been a whole different world. And I encourage you to check them out. Here we go. So, Hey movers, I want to tell you guys about today's video sponsor and that's aura. Now aura is not just another identity protection service. It's really like your all-in-one solution for safeguarding your digital life. They do the heavy lifting by scouring the internet to find and delete your publicly available information. There's no more chasing down websites or managing different services or has it all in one secure platform. And you know what else? They offer credit monitoring. They keep an eye out on your credit, ensuring your phone number isn't being handed out to those annoying robocallers. They start sending you alerts and emails, notifying you when someone is poking around in your personal information or when your phone number is being searched. And the best part is you get to decide what stays public and what gets deleted. I've tried all the various identity protection and credit monitoring services, but it's Aura's streamlined platform that sets it apart. It's user-friendly, it's customizable, and most importantly, it's secure because all of your information is stored in an encrypted vault under your control. And here's the cool part for you, my awesome audience. Aura is offering a two-week free trial. Just click the link in my description below or visit aura.com forward slash call your Landry and take back control of your digital life today with Aura. Now, uh, looking back at this whole situation with Michelle Traconis, who, if you do not know, is on trial in Connecticut for her involvement in the missing case, in the case of Jennifer Farber Dulos. And I'm going to give you guys a quick little background onto all of this. So she is so she is accused of second degree hindering 
uh, hindering prosecution, tampering with physical evidence, and conspiracy to commit murder. Now, the one thing that is very interesting about all of this and uh, something that I just have not been able to quite wrap my mind around is the husband, Fotis Doulos, Doulos, was the original suspect in all of this. And we're going to get into that, but he is no longer with us because he decided, as a good coward does, to take, well, to remove himself from this planet before he could actually face any real charges or prosecution. So we will refer to him as a cowardly individual that he is. Uh, and now the entire case falls upon the shoulders of his mistress, Michelle Traconis. Um, and, you know, this, of course, this whole thing is a mess because even when you look at the, when you look at the jurors who were a part of this, they've been four jurors so far have been dismissed or alternates because some of them have been giving, you know, high fives to the prosecution saying, we love you so much, or we are looking for, or they are referring to it as the gone girl case. I, it, it's, you know, posting on social media. Of course, social media is something that obviously the court system and our justice system and our politicians still have not yet gotten a hold of or gotten a grip on. And to be honest with you, I don't know when that's going to be, but we've got to get a handle on it. If, if people are going to use social media, we just saw this play out in the Murdoch trial and the retrial hearing and just literally with jurors sitting in the juror room watching somebody on YouTube giving their testimony before they do theirs. I mean, this is a mess and it doesn't seem like anybody can get a handle on it. So let's go back to the timeline of what happened in this case of Jennifer Dulos and, um, and Fotis Dulos. And here it is. So Jennifer Farber Dulos, who is a mother of five, disappeared on May 24th, 2019, after dropping her children off at school. Now, still, her body has never been found, but it is believed that she was murdered by her estranged husband, Fotis Dulos. He was charged with her murder in January 2020 and, of course, took the easy way out by taking his own life shortly thereafter. Two others have been charged, however, a gentleman named Kent Ma Winnie, and of course, Michelle Traconis, who is currently on trial. Ma Winnie is a attorney and friend of Dulos, and Traconis is his ex-girlfriend. Both have ple pleaded not guilty. Now, in 2014, Jennifer Farber and Fotis Dulos got married. They have five kids. And then in 2017, they filed for divorce. Now, everyone had known that this was a super contentious divorce, and Jennifer Farber, after discovering that he had a mistress, kind of feared for her life. And this is something that I, really resonates with me because my mother also had shared these same same things with me uh, before she was murdered. So uh, on May the 30th, 2017, Jennifer had filed for an emergency order of full for full custody of the five children, which, of course, was denied. They were granted shared custody until the end of the divorce proceedings. Jennifer alleges that on May 30th, 2017, Fotis had threatened to kidnap their children if she did not agree to their terms in the divorce settlement and that he had brought a gun that year. He also threatened to take them back to, I believe, Greece, even though he is from Turkey. Uh, I, I, he obviously has roots in Greece. She had thought that he was going to flee the country with the children. So, of course, as often happens in these nasty, nasty custody battles, um, these... Uh, you know, one parent threatens to take the kids from the other parent and it becomes a whole mess and, and just, it's just bad. It's, there's no other way to frame it. So on June the 3rd, 2017, Jennifer said photos quote had become enraged and appeared out of control and blamed her for scheduling activities for the children on a Saturday morning. She said, I was scared and tried to leave the room. He followed me upstairs and into the bedroom where he shut the door and blocked it. So I was trapped as he verbally attacked, attacked me and physically intimidated me. Jennifer said she was scared of him and that he had the attitude. He must win at all costs that when he believes uh, that when he believes he had been wronged, he becomes dangerous and ruthless. This is very, very similar behavior to my father. And when I started reading and researching this, I, uh, it, it, it all just really resonated with me because this is the same intimidating, intimidating um, 
behavior that my father had. He was a win at all costs. You will not. These are very similar parallels when you're dealing with someone who is in. And look, I am not a lawyer. I am not a psychologist. I'm not in law enforcement. I'm just a guy who's been through a lot of shit. But I'll tell you, these are all very parallel to like my father's psychopathy, to his narcissism, narcissistic personality disorder, and this abuse that a lot of women and families suffer at the hands of these individuals because they use the control, the manipulation tactics to get whatever they want. And it seems like Fotis was precisely that guy. So, of course, he had denied all those, uh, those allegations in family court. So that takes us up to May the 24th, 2019, which was the day that Jennifer had disappeared. At 7.57 a.m., uh, she sent a text to the babysitter, Lauren Alameda. It was her last text she ever sent. At 7.58, Jennifer drove her kids to school in her 2017 black Chevy Suburban. At 8.05 a.m., Jennifer was seen on multiple cameras returning to their home, and investigators believe that she was some then killed between 8.05 and 10.25 a.m. In 1020, at 10.25 a.m., her Suburban was seen leaving her home, but investigators believe that it was Fotis who was driving the SUV, which carried her body and items used to clean it up. At 10.29 a.m., her vehicle was seen southbound on Weed Street. At 10.38 a.m., her cell phone was tracked to 200 Latham Road in New Canaan, Connecticut, where her car was found abandoned later on that day. Her network was Verizon. And uh, not too sure what that's important here, but her network was Verizon. So Verizon was able to track her uh, at 11, 12 a.m. Three minutes after her phone is disconnected, Fotis is seen driving along the Merritt Parkway away from that area. At 1.37 p.m., Fotis's phone is tra tracked him entering the, entering the property of 80 Mountain Spring Road in Farmington and remained at the property until 3.38 p.m., traveling to 4 Jefferson Crossing in Farmington. At 5.21 p.m., Fotis arrived at 80 Mountain Spring Road, and at 5.34 p.m., he travels back to 4 Jefferson Crossing. At 7.10, both phones of Fotis and Michelle Traconis were traced to an area of Albany Avenue in Hartford, and that is where they have shown during the trial of surveillance footage that was taken at local venues of uh, Fotis, uh, Fotis unloading the car and dumping things into multiple different trash cans along Albany Avenue. And this is when Michelle Traconis was in the car and she claims that she did not know what he was doing or what he was throwing into the bins. Well, we're going to get to that a little bit later. At 741, Fotis travels back to Fort Jefferson Crossing. On June the 1st, 2019, both Fotis and Michelle are arrested and charged with tampering with or fabricating physical evidence and hindering prosecution, and both pleaded not guilty. And on July the 3rd, 2019, Fotis released a rare public statement saying that he, quote, understood the perception, the public's perception of me as a monster, given the little they know about this case. On September 4th and 5th of 2019, Fotis again was arrested on September 4th and charged with a second count of tampering with evidence in the case of Jennifer's disappearance. Michelle turned herself in the next day and was also charged with another count of tampering with evidence. Both pleaded not guilty. Clothes and sponges were, were with Jennifer's blood were found in trash cans in Hartford, where arrest warrant state surveillance cameras captured a man appearing to be Fotis of disposing of garbage bags in multiple receptacles, according to the documents of the court. A woman in the passenger seat of the car fits the appearance of Michelle, according to the arrest warrants. Now, she has since stated that she was on a phone call in the car and, of course, did not know anything that was going on. On September the 13th, 2019, state police searched reservoirs in West Hartford for evidence. News 8 confirmed, News 8 in Hartford, confirmed they, uh, officials used cadaver-sniffing dogs, which are used to detect human remains, to search wide areas near the river. Now, there for like over two years, I believe, there was a massive manhunt looking for Jennifer Dulos or her body because... Obviously, the community, look, this is a very wealthy area, Canyon, Connecticut. This is out, you know, not too far outside of New York City, but 
very, very wealthy. The Traconuses, uh, I'm sorry, the uh, um, the Duloses were very wealthy. Fotis Dulos was a was a real estate developer who had lots of money, and at least we think, and had uh, massive personal wealth and massive personal connections in dealing with you know uh, real estate and building and that's brought up a lot of questions in the trial. Like why was he dumping these things in these receptacles along Albany Avenue? When you go to a construction site, when you're building a house, they have massive dumpsters. Why not throw this trash that you're trying to get rid of in a dumpster on the construction site? I mean, I've worked on construction sites. I filmed four, four seasons of television about building homes and pools. And we literally, I would literally clean out the trash every, every week out of my car and dump it into the receptacles that we had on set because they were at the construction sites. So this to me is very, very suspect. And obviously to police the same thing on January the 7th, state police arrested Fotis at his Farmington home and charged him with capital murder, murder and kidnapping. He pleaded not guilty. The arrest warrant alleges that Fotis was lying in wait uh, for Jennifer at her home and a violent assault took place in the garage where bloodstains were found. Police claimed Fotis bound Jennifer with zip ties, put her inside her own car and cleaned the garage. The medical examiner categorized the incident as quote, homicide of violence that would quote, likely include some combination of traumatic blunt force injuries, such as bludgeoning, beating and sharp force injuries, such as stabbing and slashing according to the arrest warrant. So again, this is, this has a lot of similar parallels to my mother's own case. She suffered blunt force trauma to the head and was suffocated by my father. And that led to her death. And so when I read all this, I'm thinking like, like, wow, this is, this just really rings home to me. And one of the things that, uh, the nanny has, has since testified at Michelle Traconis's, uh, trial. And she has described that that Jennifer Dulos in the years leading up to before her disappearance and apparent murder, that she was very, very, very concerned with Fotis and feared for her life and feared also for her children's lives. And that was one of the reasons why she did not really want to file for divorce from him when they were living under the same roof, because she was worried about his violent reaction. If they were living in the same household, much like my father, much like my mother, same sort of thing. So it really, really resonates with me. Um, so on that, uh, on that same day, January 7th, 2020, right before the wonderful pandemic, Michelle Traconis was also charged with conspiracy to commit murder. According to the arrest warrant, she lied about when she saw her boyfriend on the morning of his wife, his wife had disappeared and she has pleaded not guilty. Kent Mawinney was also charged and he is a friend of Fotis and an attorney. He gave conflicting statements about his contact with Fotis and is accused of helping to cover up Jennifer's murder, according to the arrest warrant. And he has also pled not guilty. Now, I know a lot of you have been following this case for a really long time, and I'm sure in the comments, you guys are going to say, well, you got this wrong. You got this wrong. I'm literally basing this off of research, and I have not been watching this case 24-7 for five years. Full disclosure. This is something I just became interested in and I wanted to share it with you guys because this is this trial is going to go on for the next month and I'm going to talk about it a lot because I see so many different parallels. And I also see a lot that I find is interesting with this because to me, it's very interesting to see how a, a, a trial like this can be conducted when there is no smoking gun, if you will. Like there has the, the body of Jennifer uh, of, of Jennifer Dulos has not been found. And now this woman is on trial, Michelle Traconis, for essentially the similar charges that Fotis Dulos would have been charged with. So uh, there are a lot of questions in my mind regarding how we perceive this as, as an audience, as spectators, how the judicial system is looking at this in a lot of ways, because here's a man who took his own life to get out of facing this same situation that Michelle Troconis is in right now. And how does that all work? Um, I think it, it really, it really calls into question a lot of, uh, a lot of things about our judiciary. And there's another case that I had also become aware of last year. And it was very affected by it because it was just, it was at new year's and, um, and, uh, that was the, um, 
that was the case of Anna Walsh, who was a mother of three who disappeared from her Cohasset, Massachusetts home. And her body has still never been found. And of course, her husband, Brian, has been charged to as somehow, you know, he's still in the middle of his whole court situation. But again, really tragic events surrounding these women, these mothers, and being in bad situations with husbands who seem to be deeply disturbed and deeply vengeful. And, uh, and there aren't a lot of answers. So um, anyways, I digress on that. And yes, Court McNeil, blame News 8. Absolutely. If you do not like the research, please blame News 8. We did a lot of we did, we did a lot of homework on this one within a very small amount of time for you guys. So um on January the 28th, 2020. Fotis fails to show up for an emergency bail hearing in which he could have been sent back to jail. Farmington police officers then perform a wellness truck. Uh, I'm sorry, a wellness check in his home and through a garage window. An officer saw that he was slumped over in the driver's seat of a vehicle. Emergency responders forced their way into the garage and performed CPR for about 30 minutes. He was taken to the hospital in ambulance after a pulse was discovered. He was later flown to Jacoby Medical Center in the Bronx, where he undergoes treatment in a hyperbaric chamber for carbon monoxide poisoning. On January the 30th, Fotis was declared dead by suicide at 5.52 p.m. He allegedly handwrote a suicide note which maintained his innocence and, and that of everyone charged. Quote, I refuse to spend even an hour in jail for something I had nothing to do with. I want it to be known that Michelle had nothing to do with Jennifer's disappearance and neither did Kent. Now I'm going to stop everyone for a second. What is very interesting is when Fotis Dulos was arrested, he gave several press conferences. And in these press conferences, he had talked about he was concerned about being reunited with his children, concerned about his children. He never once mentioned his wife or estranged wife or soon to be ex-wife Jennifer Farbo, Farber Doulas ever in that like concerned about, Hey, I really want to find out what happened to her. Hey, I really want to, I really want justice for Jennifer as everyone else in the community wanted. So I think that speaks to something. And my father did the same thing. My father in the same way had portrayed, never said, I'm interested in what's happened to your mother. What, what could happen? We need to look for her. We need to find her. Instead, his way of his way of behaving was let's be prevaricative with police. Let's not talk to the police. Nobody say anything. Nobody do anything. Call your, everything will be fine. She'll turn up someday, <laughs> which is utterly fanciful. We see the same thing with the case of Alec Murdoch, who does not seem again. And I know there are a lot of people that are very conflicted upon uh, about Alec Murdoch's conviction for the murder of his wife, Maggie and his son, Paul. However, one of the key things in the, in the defense that that stuck that stuck out to me is that no one ever offered an an alternate theory about what could have happened to his wife and son. Again, Fotis Dulos not offering or not even considering like, hey, we need to go find out what happened to my wife. I'm really concerned because she is the mother of my children. Regardless, this is the thing that that, and I don't mean to get up on a soapbox here, but this is the thing that that really affects me with these perpetrators. They never seem to stop and think that these kids have a mom in their life, and the mother is so important to them. And the fact that they can, that they are so wanton and so callous and just do not care, and they're so selfish and just want to be able to do whatever they want and remove. Those those mother figures from the children's lives is to me like the ultimate insult. And then to sort of then to pretend and write this this note and to take his own life as if he's somehow magnanimous is absolutely beyond the pale. I refuse, quote, I refuse to spend even an hour more in jail for something I had nothing to I had nothing to do with. I want it to be known that Michelle had nothing to do with Jennifer's disappearance and neither did Kent. Now, I hope, I mean, maybe, maybe the last part of that statement was true, but who knows? And to be honest, now the entire fall, I mean, what a selfish, like what a selfish person. I mean, let's just, let's just call it what it is. It's selfish. It's not taking accountability 
or responsibility for, or facing the music of why you're even in this situation in the first place. I'm going to close this. Doreen is getting rather loud. I don't know if y'all can hear it or not, but it is really, really loud. And for those of you just joining, we are having a atmospheric river superstorm here in Southern California. We are supposed to get between six and 12 inches of rain, which is really, really unusual for us. And they call this the pineapple express. So uh, Angel Schultz says, Fotis, it turns out, was broke. Most of their money came from Jennifer's parents. Okay, so yeah. So that's what I was going to get into is they had this appearance of money. He was driving Porsches. He was making all these deals. However, a lot of this money, these finances had come from, again, Jennifer's parents who, you know, had all the money. Of course, it plays out like this. Of course, these scumbags do this. And welcome, everyone, by the way. Um, Welcome all my Mover Nation, uh, my Mover Nation fans. Thank you and family. Uh, and of course, uh, we have Tina Luffman here. So now the party is officially started. You know, we're 26 minutes into it, but yeah, no, uh, Jennifer Lewis Harris. Yes, there will be, uh, there will be mudslides right around the corner from me. I'm up on a hill. So, um, and I can see the ocean. Well, I can't see the ocean now, but, um, yeah, but, uh, it will, yeah, it's, it's nasty. It's nasty. Uh, illegally red says every case like this, I see, I thank God that I did not have children with the abusive narcissist. I was briefly married to amen. Yes. And, uh, sweet and sleuthy. Thank you so much. I'm happy you found this channel too. Welcome. Welcome. Uh, back to the timeline. So he cowardly, the coward does the cowardly thing. Then we go to March the 2nd, 2020. Now this is interesting because, you know, this has been five years since this is going on. It is now what uh, February the fourth, twenty twenty four. This all started happening in in twenty nineteen, May of twenty nineteen. So um, it's interesting to see. Obviously, we had a massive pandemic that shut all this down, and these trials that were all caught in limbo of the pandemic. I mean, just ugh, what a what a mess. Anyways, on March the second, twenty twenty, a grant. I uh, sorry, a judge granted a noble prosecution request by prosecutors to dismiss the charges against FOTUS ending that criminal case. There's an actual term term for it, uh, a, a Latin term. I can't remember what it's called, but basically, yes, they, they dismissed the charges against him because it's, you know, <laughs> it's uh it's not an acquittal, but the acknowledgement of the reality that the prosecution of FOTUS cannot continue because there's no FOTUS to prosecute anymore. After the hearing, Fotis's attorney said he was framed, claiming someone murdered Jennifer and dumped a pile of bloody clothing on the porch, and that those were the items that he was seen dumping into the trash bin on a Hartford street. On May 20th, 2020, 2020 in her only statement, Michelle Traconis said that she is sad for the five children losing both parents within the last year. She said she made a mistake in trusting Fotis. She said there is a lot she wishes she could say, but she knows nothing about what may have happened to Jennifer. On August the 20th, state prosecutors filed two new counts of conspiracy to commit evidence tampering in connection with what authorities allege were efforts to co cover up the killing of Jennifer. Michelle's lawyer has denied the allegations against her. In 2021, various searches were conducted, but nothing has been released in what may have been or been not found. March 29th, 2022, a judge denied a request to remove a GPS ankle monitor while Michelle is out on bail awaiting trial. He also asked the state to return electronics taken from the Traconis family, including her daughter's computer and her mother's phone. On April the 26th, 2023, uh, he changed his mind. <laughs> On May the 15th, 2023, Mawini was freed from house arrest, but he still has to wear an ankle bracelet. And on May the 24th, 2023, which marked the four-year anniversary of Jennifer Farber-Dulos' disappearance, based on evidence found in the garage of her home, she was finally presumed dead. And now Jennifer's mother, who lives in Brooklyn, is raising five children. That takes us to Michelle Traconis' trial. So again, Michelle Traconis, 
do you guys think is she a victim or is she in fact lady macbeth and if you guys don't get that reference read the bard read macbeth <laughs> lady macbeth is the one they pin it on for macbeth going haywire <laughs> and killing people and killing the kid uh but that's a whole other story for a whole other day um so do we think that she is a victim of being manipulated by Fotis or is she indeed really hands-on involved in this crime covering up? Did she know that Fotis had murdered his wife and did she willingly participate in this? And this is the question that is before the court right now and before the jury. So again, what is she accused of? She is accused of second degree hindering prosecution, tampering with physical evidence and conspiracy to commit murder. Now, from what I found earlier this morning, if in Connecticut, the, the charge for conspiracy to commit murder and actual charge of murder is the same sentence, which is 60 years in prison. So it's interesting that there is no, um, that there's no difference between, uh, someone who is accused of murder or conspiracy to commit murder in the state of Connecticut. I would imagine this probably dates back to like mafia laws because Connecticut being in the proximity of New York city. And obviously <laughs> a lot of mafia activity has come out of New York city over the decades. I wonder if that has something to do with it. Again, I have no idea. I'm just speculating. So accused of being doula with doulos when he drove around Hartford, disposed of evidence in bags and was with him when he washed his truck, to clear it of evidence. Video also allegedly shows her discarding of a package that contained an old license plates in a storm drain. And these license plates were admitted into evidence not too long ago, a couple weeks ago during her trial. And they had been altered with tape and cut out like the T was made into an I. So they were involved in it. it there's a lot of stuff that, that is very strange in this because there's a lot of things that are very hard and dif difficult for Michelle Traconis's defense to explain away. Why would she be participating of that? Um, and, and why would she be with, be with Fotis when he was disposing of things that they believe are, are, were evidence of his wife's murder. And, um, but on the flip side, you have, uh, Traconis, who was interviewed on three separate occasions by police leading up to her trial and in every different, um, interrogation, she gave different answers. And one of the things that her, her attorneys are arguing is she is from a Venezuelan family. So she is a Venezuelan, if you will, socialite, and her family has obviously come out in her defense. But a lot of people are, are, are saying like, look, she didn't know what the police were saying to her. Or she didn't, which to me, I would say, well, I would ask for an interpreter. And I've listened to some of these interrogations and these police, you know, something that, again, not a lawyer, not a psychologist, not law enforcement. I'm just a guy who's been through a lot of shit. But I will tell you one thing. And my friend who's a federal agent, one of my closest friends, tells me the same thing. The police can lie to you. There is no law. <laughs> There is when they are interrogating you or they are trying to find out information from you and you are a potential suspect, they, they are not bound to tell you the truth at all. It doesn't matter. Like they can say, Hey, look, I just need you to help me out, buddy. Um, you know, did you know about this? You know, we just want to find out some more stuff. Well, we, you know, we'll let you go when we get to the station. They can say anything they want. <laughs> they can say anything they want to you just so you know. So the key thing is don't talk to police, <laughs> get a lawyer, get a lawyer. If you learn anything from me, it's that get a lawyer before you talk to the cops because they can lie to you and they can, they can steer you into, into digging yourself into a hole that you might not be able to dig yourself out of. So it's, it's, you know, the, the, the world, the justice system is littered with cautionary tales like this. Have a lawyer present, ask for an interpreter. You're entitled to those things under our justice system, under the United States Constitution. Ask for them, <laughs> period. I digress. So video allegedly also shows her discarding of the package, which contained old license plates in a storm drain. And her defense has argued that there is no proof that that is her on the video. So January 11th, 2024, it was day one of her trial which began with a walkthrough by police of Farber Dulos's home from the day that she was reported missing. 
Body cam footage showed officers finding her vehicle at a nearby park, and Traconis's attorney, John Schoenhorn, successfully argues that Jennifer should be referred to as, quote, an alleged victim and not a victim, stating it would be different if Dulos was on trial. Cat loves cat skills. Thank you so much for your 10 month membership. Wow. 10 months I've been doing these lives. This is crazy. 10 month membership. Thank you so much for that. I, I agree. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I agree. <laughs> I'm looking at somebody else's comment. Uh, thank you so much. I greatly appreciate it. And Black Widow, welcome. Black Widow without the wrench. Uh, day two of the trial. Focus on evidence collection. Schoenhorn argued about using luminol, which I don't know what luminol is. Uh, police have said that, oh, yes, luminol is a chemical substance that is used to find and detect iron in blood. And he extensively grilled one of the police experts, which I thought was really interesting in the trial. And I thought to myself, God, if I was this, if I was this officer, I would, this is what I would have replied to. So he, uh, her defense attorney was arguing that, um, he was talking about this luminol and he said, well, what do you use it for? And he said, well, it detects iron in the blood. And he said, well, yeah, but you're not a chemist, right? So you don't really understand how it works. Now, obviously he's not a scientist and not a chemist. He is a law enforcement person, but again, he understands that it is there and it does discover iron, which is a key element of blood. And it is a key indicator that blood has been spilled somewhere. So it does detect these things to things. I would have responded to him saying like, look, I don't know how a car works, but I know that it drives same type of thing. I mean, that's what I would have said because you know, like for them to argue, well, if you don't really know the technical makeup of what, of what luminol is, are you really qualified to use it? Yeah, I am. And I'm qualified of driving a car, even though I do not know how to build an internal combustion engine, right? My name is not Henry Ford, but I know I can drive a Ford. So that would have been my response to them. So I thought that, again, this is like this gamesmanship that all these lawyers play. And it's like, it's a spade is a spade. Like it detects blood. That's what we use it for. That's why I have like, that's why we use it in our process. Like, I don't know how we lift fingerprints off of either. You take it, you put a powder, you lift it up. There it is. It's a miracle, but it works. It's been proven. So uh, I always find these things when I watch these trials and these defense attorneys kind of throwing out these little questions. Of course, they're, they're trying to represent their client. They want to be able to be the best lawyer that they can be for their client. But I'll tell you, some of this stuff is just so, it's just so ridiculous to me. And, uh, I got to tell Amazon Alexa to cut out the music, which is playing and it's annoying the crap out of me. There we go. Brilliant. I of course keep that on for Marisol, but she has her bone, which is keeping her occupied right now. Anyways, on day three of the trial, show and Horde continue to argue allowing, allowing, uh, against allowing testimony surrounding the evidence found using luminol stating it reacts to iron and could show that bleach and rust are blood. I don't know, but bleach, bleach definitely people use to clean up blood witness testimony with Lauren Almeida, the children's current nanny, as well as at the time of the disappearance said that Dulos was harsh and Jennifer quote, did not like conflict. She said she admired Dulos until she discovered he was having an affair. So she does testify uh, this young lady does testify that um, she had looked up to uh, uh, to Fotis Doulos when she hired him or when he hired her, which was straight out of college. And she was an ambitious young woman and she wanted greater things for herself than to be a nanny. And she appreciated his advice that he, she had lent that he had lent her and felt that he was really encouraging of her personal success until she discovered he was a total scumbag. So there you have it. On day four, Schoenhorn put in a motion challenging some DNA testing and software, claiming the technology has no peer-reviewed studies, just research done by the company itself. The judge denied the request. Probably rightfully so. The nanny returned to the witness stand and said that after she learned of the affair with Traconis, the, the married couple's dynamic changed and it was uncomfortable to be in the presence of both of them. She heard Dulos threaten to take the children to Greece and not come back. And Jennifer was afraid of him and hired an armed bodyguard to stand outside a hotel room during a trip to Miami that they went to. 
The judge dismissed an alternate juror, juror over a comment made to an assistant state's attorney, which was apparently something like, we love you guys to the prosecution in the elevator. Of course, she was. they were swiftly dismissed because of that. I mean, just craziness. I'm, I'm sure they're all planning on writing books too, just like Becky Hill. On day five, Kristen Medell, a forensic science examiner, provided an overview of what a DNA profile is and how it is obtained. The lab took samples from Dulos, Jennifer, their children, and Michelle Traconis. She said the results showed that blood-like stains in the garage floor and the Range Rover parked there tested as, quote, a single female and is most likely Jennifer. The same results showed on the kitchen island, on a used paper towel, and a kitchen sink faucet. Now, one of the things, to backtrack to the nanny, um, Lauren Almeida, is that she spoke about how the night before Jennifer's disappearance, that there were 12 rolls of paper towels that they had stocked in the house. And the next day when she came to the house, when Jennifer was gone, that there was only two rolls of paper towels left. So the, she had thought the kids had gone through 10 rolls of paper towels that maybe they had spilled something, but she thought it was really, really odd that 10 rolls of paper towels had just disappeared in a day. So that's one key, key thing that, you know, is a piece of evidence like, okay, this doesn't quite make sense. And a lot of this, unfortunately, is obviously without Jennifer uh, Farber Dulos's body, this is all circumstantial evidence, but this is what, they're going, they're going with, obviously. Um, Medell, who is the, Kristen Medell, who is a forensic science examiner, uh, examiner, uh, also noted that samples were 1 billion times, 100 billion times more likely to be from Jennifer than an unknown, than an unknown whose DNA had not been sampled. So with almost utter certain certainty she can say that the dna was that of jennifer farber dulos um samples from the faucet spout had a mix of two dna profiles and one being male which was likely photos dulos schoenhorn questioned the results stating items can test as false positive and stressing evidence was quote way too microscopic on day six, another juror was dismissed for discussing the case and referencing the novel and movie Gone Girl. <laughs> One of the jurors gave the judge an unsigned note, which read, uh, which re read aloud, juror who made the comments was dismissed, which, was read which he read aloud, and the juror who made the comments was dismissed, and other jurors said they could remain impartial. <laughs> Connecticut State Police Colonel, uh, Police Colonel, Mark Davison testifies his analysis showed at least two bloodshed events inside the garage. All, he also walked the jury through the reconstruction process based on the blood patterns. Sergeant Kenneth Vitresca, Ventresca also took the stand and showed photos of Albany Avenue in Hartford, a location vital to the case and is expected to play a significant role when he resumes testifying. Which he did on day, day seven, Monday, day seven, Kenneth Veltreska testified about days following Jennifer's disappearance. He said every employee from the Dulos's company, the four group, was placed on a whiteboard with info about where they lived and vehicles they drove. Joshua Quint, who had worked who who has worked for police as a crime analyst, walked the jury through the process of searching footage for black for a black Ford Raptor. Authorities believed that Dulos was driving the night that Jennifer disappeared which is also shown in the surveillance video footage shows a person who is quote, allegedly Dulos getting out of a truck and dumping a bag of trash into various dumpsters along, uh, along Albany Avenue. And not just like dumpsters. These are like literal, like trash cans that are on the side of the street that people just walking past can put. They're not like dumpster bins. They're literal, like plastic trash cans on the side of the sidewalk. Um, very, very, and it's, and, People say it looks like him. Alleges it looks just like him. I've seen the video. It looks just like him. <laughs> like it's the guy, um, and driving a Ford Raptor, which is a really nice truck, by the way. Um, but it shows a person who is quote allegedly Dulos getting out of the truck and dumping a bag of trash into various dump dumpsters. Traconis is also allegedly seen leaning out of the truck. Another video shows Dulos and Traconis leaving a vehicle uh, and placing license plates into 
a storm drain. The plates were canceled were were for a canceled registration in Dulos's name. Now, also this night that uh, that they were disposing or that that Fotis Dulos was disposing of all this, um, uh, Michelle Traconis claims that they were going to Starbucks and that was the whole reason why she was with him. She was waiting to get her Starbucks, which as I take another sip of my coffee, she must really like her Starbucks, but might be contemplating her, her Starbucks addiction uh, right now at this moment. That's for sure. Connecticut uh, in day eight, Connecticut state police Sergeant Kevin Dugan testified about checking garbage bins around Hartford and seizing trash as evidence. Items like two shirts, along with zip ties, a clear poncho, a bath towel, a broken razor blade, a bra, and gloves that all had blood-like substances on them. Other items seized were a bent broom or mop handle, sponges, a screwdriver, and keys. Carrie Luft, a friend of Jennifer's who is representing friends and family, wrote, quote, witnessing Jennifer's blood-soaked clothing knowing that it was the shirt that she wore on the last day of her life made us imagine again what she must have endured on May 24th, 2019. We hope that seeing this evidence in three dimensions can put an end to any suggestion that Jennifer is, quote, missing. She died a tragic death and her loss is felt beyond what words can express. We are grateful to the prosecution and all the and the investigators for their meticulous collection and presentation of evidence in this case. Above all, we trust in justice and we hope this trial will provide answers to and accountability for what was done to Jennifer that day. Um, and again, when we talk about all this stuff and when I talk about this, uh, we mustn't forget that the and I'm someone who's very passionate about this is the consequences and the impacts of violent acts like this is so far reaching into communities and to th this this whole thing is dragged on now for almost five years and what this community has gone through and what her friends have gone through what the children have gone through i mean they have aged five years since all their mother went missing and still not having those answers uh, you know, again, I've talked about this in other episodes, and when I share my story, it's something that I, that I, I firmly talk about. Having heard my mother being murdered, and knowing that my father did that, as horrific as it is to sit here and say that and share that with you guys, even with a smile on my face, um, it is very true that I don't have any question in my mind that my father murdered my mother. No questions whatsoever. <clears throat> I often wondered why he did it. I posed that question to him in my film, A Murder in Mansfield. You can check it out. You can buy it right underneath here. It's, it's a link in my store. But I never once ever questioned that he did it. You know what I mean? The problem is for these children as they grow up and the problem for these community members, for family members, for people that are involved and directly impacted by this is because there has not been a body found because there has not you know, obviously the bloodstained shirt you're still not getting that that um that that for lack of a better word that closure there is something there is something to be said for actually seeing a body you know one of the things that that really affected me growing up is i was not allowed to go to my mother's funeral so in a lot of ways that was something that haunted me haunted me in a way that even though i knew she was gone and I knew what happened to her. It didn't really put that bud because I wasn't able to like sit there and say goodbye. So I had to go through my life and find other ways to do that. And my process was to create a film and then now talk about it and share my perspective, my unique perspective on true crime society and popular culture and mental health, albeit with a slight sense of humor with you guys. That's how I cope with all this. This is sort of my way of like healing through all this. And you guys are witnessing through my process and through my podcast and through you guys are watching me, but you know, that's something that is that I, I don't ever want that to be lost because we get really involved in the minutia of the trial and of the suspects and of the people who are the accused. And we tend to forget that there are very, very real and dire circumstances and, and consequences that exist around 
this woman's loss of her life, her children, her family, people not really knowing what happened, not really knowing what happened to her, speculating how she died. This, it is a horrific thing to consistently kind of replay in your mind, um, you know, for whatever it is. I mean, these, the, the, this is tragic to begin with, but even to have that sort of speculation constantly going through your mind, it's a lot. Even I had trouble sleeping after reading about this case all last night and, and watching a lot of content. I had trouble sleeping. Anyways, back to the timeline of the trial. Day nine, Matthew Riley, a retired Connecticut State Police Sergeant, continued to lay out the evidence collecting process. Schoenhorn, who is Traconis' attorney, argued that the evidence exhibits, quote, 99% aren't relative to this case. And he was, of course, overruled by the judge. Riley said officers seized handwritten notes during the search, which Dulos and Traconis allegedly wrote out that they had what they had done on the day of Jennifer's disappearance. The papers were found within a computer bag at the Dulos home, at the Dulos's home. And that timeline included getting frappuccinos at Starbucks in West Hartford, taking a phone call and other events. The trip to, uh, to Maine to Hartford was not included. On day 10, John Kimball, a retired detective who now works as an officer in Westport, Connecticut, discussed Traconis, uh, discussed Traconis's initial, discussed Traconis's initial interview with investigators. Traconis's attorney had argued in pretrial court appearances that the interrogation videos shouldn't be used during the trial because Traconis was tired and the interviews were conducted in English, which was her second language. However, a judge ruled that the prosecution can use those videos. Traconis has been listening to the trial via Spanish interpreter. That's what the headphones are that are in her ears. Kimball told the court that she had never asked for an interpreter during her interrogation and that he wasn't concerned about her ability to understand and speak English. Kimball said Traconis arrived at the police department just after midnight on June the 2nd, 2019. He testified that Dulos was overly concerned about Michelle Traconis's behavior and conduct. And then, and, and then he was staring at her while the police were speaking to her quote, his physical behavior was concerning towards the defendant unquote. He said, adding that he had concerns about her safety in her interview with police. Traconis is heard saying that she will help with the investigation. She detailed what she did that day. Kimball said that the timeline changed each of the three times that she was interviewed. The day of Jennifer's disappearance, Traconis and Dulos were in West Hartford for Traconis's daughter's French lessons. And Traconis said in interviews, which is why they were in the area where vi video allegedly showed Dulos disposing of evidence. The two went to Starbucks and Traconis said that she wasn't paying attention when Dulos threw out trash bags. She said that they had uh, they had thrown out other garbage bags before. Later in the video, Traconis is heard saying that she did not see the bags and didn't smell anything that could have been in them. Day 11. Traconis' second interview with police is played for the jury. Quote, I went as a companion, she has heard saying, quote, if I knew he was going to do something wrong, I would have never walked into that car. Unquote. In the video, she states that she does not know where Jennifer is. Quote, Fotis lies to ed, uh, everyone, John Kimball says in the video, and quote, the reason why he, lie, he lies to everyone is because he cares only about one person in this world, and that is himself. He doesn't care about his first wife, his second wife, or you. So he's actually pleading with her, please cooperate with us <laughs> because he doesn't care about you. And neither, does, and neither does the police officer. He just wants to make a case. Officials says there were inconsistencies. Officials say there were inconsistencies with Traconis's stories. She became visibly emotional, hanging her head and crying into her hands as Kimball continued to interrogate her, telling her that he was quote probably she was probably the most hated woman in America right now. And he does say that it's kind of horrible, actually. Traconis's sister Claudia addressed the videos outside of the court, saying. We're finally seeing how my sister attempted to cooperate not once, not twi twice, but three times with the police saying everything, trying to assist them as best she could, unquote. And so I know everyone wants answers, but my sister is not the right answer. She doesn't know anything, unquote. Day 12, the court lost yet another juror 
after they said they had to leave the country for a family emergency. An alternate was drawn and leaving only two left. John Kimball took the, took, uh, took the stand again to answer questions from the defense about the interrogations. He said Traconis told him during the interviews that she didn't know what Dulos was doing that day and that she didn't know anything about Jennifer's disappearance. We believed, given the totality of the relationship, that she would know more than she was giving or providing us. Now, her attorney, Schoenhorn, said that Traconis would that that she would quote dig holes and trek through the woods to help find Jennifer. Law enforcement officers have highlighted that Traconis was inconsistent with her statements throughout her three interviews with police, and she omitted information, uh, some information from a timeline that she wrote. The information included the trip that her and her and Dulos made to Hartford, at and their stop at Starbucks. Schoenhorn pointed pointed out to other pointing to other details that were left like that she picked up her daughter from school and that Dulos went out for a jog. He reasserted again outside the courtroom that she was not guilty. Day 13. Connecticut State Police Sergeant Michael Beaumont testified about evidence seized after Jennifer went missing. He has already testified about what was uncovered in the Albany Avenue area in Hartford, including two doctored license plates removed from the storm drain. Those license plates had canceled res registration for a sub for suburban that Dulos had once owned. He talked about encountering Powell Gemeni, who worked for Dulos, and how the employees seemed uh, seemed overly nervous. Police believe that Dulos took Gemeni's Jeep Cherokee to Jennifer's home when he went to kill her. That would make me nervous too. Day 14. Testimony addressed vehicles possibly connected to her disappearance. In one case, an older model Toyota Tacoma had uh, had two Porsche seats in the back. The seat uh, the seat cover on one had been removed, and the seats were not attached to the floorboard. One of the seats had tested positive for possibly being uh, blood, according to court testimony. There were no viable hits from two do other doorknobs, and that the fingerprints were found. Uh, were not found on bloody items like the clear ponchos in the plastic bag. Another plastic bag had Fotis Dulles's fingerprint on it. Day 15, Sidney Strader, who supervised Dulos's vis visitation with his children, said that she had to see Dulos at all times and that he had to stay with an earshot. She said that the children joked with him on May the 22nd, 2019 about his new haircut. She described the estranged couple's relationship that day as amicable, and the visit was two days before Jennifer went missing. Christine Roy, a retired forensic science expert, talked about examining the case's evidence while she worked at the Connecticut State Forensics Library. She testified about a cut, a bloody shirt that was found in a bag Dulos allegedly disposed of. Roy said that there was damage to the shirt, which investigators believe belonged to Jennifer Dulos. Next to the opening down the front, a bra also found in the trash tested positive for blood. And day 16, which was Friday, testimony once again focused on evidence, coll evidence collection and testing, specifically on items recovered from trash bins in Hartford. Retired forensic science examiner Anita Valonis took the stand. She worked at the state lab in, uh, in Meriden in the forensic biology unit and processed evidence tied to the case. She explained she did so by documenting these items, searching for possible DNA, and testing samples. She testified that she did a screening test for blood on a number of items, including husky gloves, carpeting from the floor of a Toyota Tacoma, and a yellow-green sponge. Areas on those pieces of evidence tested positive for blood, but a mat from the truck and a section from one of the gloves came back negative. She also said she uncovered five human hairs on a towel, the interior door panel of a truck, and a clear plastic bag and a different sponge. Hairs and other samples of evidence were sent, to, sent for DNA testing, but those results have not been published to the jury. Schoenhorn, Traconis' attorney, argue that some uh, some items might have been contaminated based on how the evidence was collected in Hartford. He has repeatedly objected to this type of testimony, saying these presumptive tests without these are presumptive tests without confirmatory results. So, 
Thank you so much, WTNH Channel 8, for this timeline of events. So now this all begs the question, a couple of things. Is Michelle Traconis a victim, or is she indeed Lady Macbeth? Did she possibly encourage Fotis Dulos to take the wife uh, take the life of his estranged wife, Jennifer Farber Dulos? I don't know. And I, I gotta be honest with you. Uh, I'm really torn on this so far. I am looking forward to hearing more testimony. There were already 16 days into this trial uh, and they are talking about, this is going to go till March. Um, what a mess. What a mess. I mean, I can tell you one thing that Fotis Dulos took the easy way out and apparently left everyone else to clean up his messes both literally and figuratively. And that to me is probably the greatest tragedy in all of this, because if indeed this woman was just, you know, the babe in the woods and didn't really know what was going on, didn't understand when she was being interrogated by police and is somehow a, a victim of Fotis's manipulation and deception. Oh God, she's facing a lot of time and that's, that's terrible. That's horrible. And she also has a child herself. She has a daughter, right? So, you know, you have six children, six, wait, hold on, six children who are affected by this entire thing on top of the family, on top of her family, which lives in Venezuela, who has, you know, come to her, obviously her defense, her sister and family being outside the courtroom. This is a mess. This is just a mess again. I, you know, I talk about true crime. I share with you guys my opinion and perspective on this because I feel like we need to really, really look at the consequences of violence. We need to really look at the actions of these people and see how far reaching all this can be and how this affects, um, affects so much, affects communities, affects families and how the selfish acts of some of these individuals, the, the, the butterfly effect, the repercussions of this just goes so far and wide. And yes. And as people are pointing out, she is on the phone. She says she was on the phone. She is out there. And, um, and you know, she, she was in the car and, you know, again, I go back to my father's trial and the day that my mother's body was found is the day that my father's business associate found concrete on his property, which tested positive to the concrete that was underneath my father's basement floor of his home where he buried my mother underneath the basement of. So again, and that, you know, obviously he was, you know, questioned by police. He testified at trial. Um, that's a whole other conspiracy theory I can go into on another day when talking about my story. But again, people who commit these crimes do not care about involving everyone and every person in within their grasp, within their reach and dragging them into their misery and dragging them into their, to their, to their bullshit. And is, is that what is, what has happened with Michelle Traconis or not? I don't know. And a jury will obviously decide the fate of, of Michelle Traconis. There's way more information. I'm not saying this is a reckless prosecution or whether it is a justified prosecution. I'm looking at this going, wow, uh, there, there's a lot here. And this is a really, you know, in the, in the court of public opinion and in, in, in the way that we view these cases, we oftentimes want to try the person before there's even a trial. I mean, look at Brian Koberger with the Idaho four case, you know, he is not even on trial yet. And people were looking everywhere, you know, even, even so much as a, a, an influencer on TikTok claiming that it was a professor at the university of Idaho that had something to do with those murders, which is wrong. <laughs> it was absolutely wrong and dragged people into it. We're always looking for our, like our bloodlust in these types of things can go so far. Is that where, is that where we're at here? I don't know. I'm not saying one way or another. I'm just saying it's a unique and it's an interesting 
perspective to apply to this case and many others that maybe perhaps our bloodlust blinds us from actual justice. But I don't know, but it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what you guys think. My audience, please let me know in the comments below. Uh, please give me your opinion. I'd love to hear it. Again, uh, I want to say a big shout out. Thank you so much to all my channel members and channel subscribers. Black Widow, thank you so much. Member for eight months. Cynthia Ann, thank you so much um, uh, for joining for 10 months. And Cat Loves Cat Skills, thank you for being a 10-month member. Um, wow, I'm really, I, I'm, I'm very, uh, I'm, I'm very honored. Very honored that you guys are joining me on this journey. Uh, I'm here to give you this unique perspective because, uh, you know, there are many people out there that, that are, that are, are lawyers or that are former law enforcement that are giving their perspective. And I, I feel a lot of times, you know, you don't get that other side from a person who's actually lived through this in a completely different way. I'm very emotionally connected to what happened to my mother and what I went through as a child and what my father did. And I feel that I can add a unique perspective of compassion uh, when looking at these cases. And so that's why I bring this to you guys because this just shapes how I view the world. And I think it's important to have these discussions outside of a setting that is framed in legal framework, more of, Hey, this is the reality of the situation for everyone involved. And how do we go forward and how do we learn to be better human beings and better people? Anyways, Mover Nation, thank you so much. Uh, again, thank you to all my channel members, my channel subscribers, my Patreon supporters. Without you guys contributing, uh, you know, uh, it, it makes all this possible. It keeps the lights on. It keeps me dry on days like today when there's a flood happening outside my window. Uh, and I greatly appreciate it. I appreciate all your support. And even you guys just showing up here and and checking out my content, sharing it with others. Uh, there's more content here on true crime and my own personal true crime story. You want to check it out. Uh, there are playlists for that if for you guys to dive down in a rabbit hole. Um, on that note, Mover Nation, uh, we get through another one. And uh, I'm going to stay dry here in the Southland, Los Angeles, California. I'm Collier Landry. I'll see you on the next one. This podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. For exclusive content around this podcast, please consider supporting me via Patreon by going to collierlandry.com forward slash support. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please leave us a five-star review. If you want to see video episodes of this podcast, please check out my YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash Collier Landry. You can find links to additional resources in the show notes of today's episode. This podcast is a production of Don't Touch My Radio. Copyright Collier Landry.